for the first time. Um, we're so glad you are here. Um, bad day to start a diet, hey? Right? <laughs> it really is. Um, we're so glad you're here. A lot, of, uh, a lot of jerseys out there. If you wore a Bengals jerseys, jersey, uh, extra points for you. We'll give brown points at least one point since they're in Ohio. At least one point. Steeler fans, we won't go there if you have one of those. Yeah. What do those points mean? I have no idea. No idea. Hey, over in your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1. If we'll all stand together in honor of God's word, we'll start in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Verse 1 is what it reads. It says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience with your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. And he is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our... But our very, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good works we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful weather you've given us today. And that we get to come together as a body of believers and open your word and study your word have a wonderful time together as well. I pray that no one leaving here or no one who hears my voice will leave without knowing you as their Savior, or knowing about your wonderful grace in which you have given to us. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. And you have offered it to us, not because we're good, but we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet you have offered it to us. And we are thankful. May we worship you and praise you with all of our heart soul, and mind. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. So a little football humor to start us off here um, this morning. Four football fans go rock climbing one afternoon. A Steelers fan, a Cowboys fan, a Bengals fan, and a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And they had been arguing the all, all the way up the mountain who among them was the most diehard fan. Upon reaching the top of the mountain, the Steelers fan proclaimed to the other three, uh, this is for the Steelers, and promptly threw himself off the mountain as a form of sacrifice, <laughs> waving his terrible towel as he fell to his death. 
Not to be outdone by the Steelers fan, the Cowboys fan jumped off and shouted, how about them Cowboys, and threw himself off the mountain. Refusing to be outdone by the Steelers and Cowboy fans, the Bengals fan rose to his feet and yelled at the top of his lungs, this is for the world, who day? And without hesitation, pushed the Kansas City fan off the mountain. (laughs) Shouting, shake it off, shake it off. Anyway, here's a question for you. Some of you got to shake it off a little bit later. Here's a question I want us to look at. And when you first read this passage, it may not really go with the question, but it does. How do you win in life? How do you really win in life? Now, uh, we all like to win. Some of us may come from more competitive families than others. Maybe it's board games, whatever it may be. We all like to win. And some of us are more competitive than others, but we like to win. And so how do we know if we're winning in life? People have different ideas of what winning looks like in life. Uh, For some, it's money, right? Maybe the the amount of money you make, maybe the amount of money you have in your retirement or in your bank account, but you have in your mind that uh, this money has made you successful. And yet, and yet, money can so easily just go away quickly. It can disappear. We think we're good and then Tragedy, tragedy happens in our, in our life, something happens unexpectedly, and suddenly we are faced with maybe the possibility of losing what we had. In fact, many who end up gaining wealth almost, maybe almost hoard it and kind of look at it as like, now that I had this money, I have to worry about anyone taking it. Before I was worrying about getting it, now I'm worrying about anyone taking it. For some, it's power. For some, it's power is success. Maybe they have some authority in their job. They have people underneath them. And they're now the boss, and they get to make some of the big decisions, only to see that sometimes when you're the one making the decisions, it can be lonely at the top. It can be lonely in leadership at times. And not every decision that you make is a good decision, and then you can be criticized, and then you wonder, oh, I'm not sure if I really wanted this. And so some have climbed the corporate ladder only to get to the top to look around and then to see that they're laid off. They put a lot of their identity in their job. For some, success in life is possessions. It could be the car in which they drive. It could be the house in which they have. But as we know, cars get old. They break down eventually. Houses do the same. They usually eventually need maintenance. Um, Some, it's their possessions. Um, In fact, um, maybe some of you as a kid, you collected maybe uh, baseball cards or football cards and it got me wondering a little bit, what are some of the most expensive NFL cards ever sold? There's a 2017 uh, Panini, is how you pronounce the card name, National Treasures Platinum, number 161, one of one. It is a Patrick Mahomes rookie card that's autographed. It is worth estimated around 4 to $5 million. There's a 2000 Playoff Contenders Championship ticket that's a card signed by Tom Brady as a rookie, his rookie card. 
It's one of 100, and um, this one in particular, because they have different grades on them, is worth around $3 million. Then there is uh, Jim Brown, the Cleveland Browns player, 1958 Topps card worth about $400,000. You see, the issue is not that we have money or we have power or responsibility or possessions. The problem is this. The, the issue is that all those things I just mentioned can easily have us. They easily have us. And there are many people who end up in their 40s, 50s, 60s, at the end of their life looking around, and they have the money they want, maybe the job they want, the possessions in which they want, and they enjoy those things, but they look around and go, is this... Is this all there really is? Shouldn't there be a little bit more to this life? And nothing has filled that void that is in their life. They thought they were winning in life because everyone said that's what you need to win in life. You have to have this, this, and this. And they end up getting those things and they go, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. In fact, um, there's an interview, Tom Brady, when he was in his late 20s, he had won three Super Bowls at that time. And if you know Tom Brady, I think he was in like 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them. But after winning three Super Bowls, he was sitting and being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And this is what he said. I'll never forget what he said. He said, there's got to be more than this. He has money. He was married to a supermodel. He had children. He had fame. He had all those things in which so many people desire and want. And he is going, well, I, I, I value my family and friends, and I, I love them. But I, I, I look around, I go, there has to be more than this. And there is. And what we see in this world is saying what is success is truly not success. Jesus said this. He said in Mark 8, 36, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? What profit is if you had a billion dollars right now in your bank account, you had everything you wanted in life, and yet your soul had no connection with God? The God of the universe who made all that there ever has been made, he made it in such a beautiful and a uh, a detailed way. He made you, he made me, he made everything with the different abilities in which he's given us, and yet we do not know, we do not know the creator. We do not know the creator. The late, great coach, Vince Lombardi, you've heard of him. He was a Packers coach. At the beginning of every year in which he would coach, he would stand in front of his players, professional athletes, and he would take a football. He would take a football and he would stand before them and he would say this, this is a football. And he'd say, well, no duh, coach, that's a football. But the message in it was loud and clear. He knew they knew what a football was. What was he reminding them of? Of the basics. Of the basics. Maybe you've heard of this acronym, KISS. It, keep it 
simple, silly. <laughs> I may have changed it a little bit at the end. That's what Vince Lombardi was telling his team. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes with connecting with your creator and connecting with Jesus Christ, this passage right here from verse 1 to verse 10 is simplifying the gospel because the message of the gospel is simple. And so this morning, my message could almost be, how are you successful in life? Well, I don't want you to focus on the physical and what you can get, but on the spiritual this morning. And I simply want to say this is a football. And here's number one. Number one is realize you need help. <laughs> we don't like to admit that, uh, but we need help. And this is what it says in verse one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. When God created Adam and Eve, when he created all that he created, the Bible says he sat back, he looked at all that he created, and he called it good. But he gave man, he gave mankind free will, the ability to sin. And as we know, Adam and Eve sinned. We know that we sin. God has given us free will. Everyone's been giving free will. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Is there, where's that line between God's sovereignty and man's free will? It seems within the scope of God's sovereignty, he is allowed within a parameter of free will. Well, he's allowed in our nature. He's given you free will. Sometimes God gets blamed for evil and that he's the author of evil. And some will ask, well, how come there is evil? Well, God has given us free will. And as men and women, we have the ability to do good, we have the ability to do evil, and God has given If he had not given us free will, we would simply be pre-programmed creatures that, that really could not truly love and could not truly worship. And so we deal with this issue of sin. You see, the penalty of sin has killed you. And in football, when you see the yellow flag, you know there's a penalty. You lose maybe 10 yards, 5 yards, or 15 yards, or whatever penalty is going to be. This penalty involves death. And that's what else it says. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the what? Unseen world. There's an unseen world there's a spiritual world, and which we do not see, we do not know completely about, but the Bible gives us a glimpse about what's going on. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. There really is a good verse evil in this life. But as we were born, we were DOA spiritually. We were dead on arrival. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so we... We, we do bad things because we are sinners, every single one of us. Every now and then I'll meet somebody and I'll ask them, hey, have you ever sinned before? Maybe they don't realize what sin is, but sin is anything, anything that we say, think, or do that breaks God's heart or breaks God's law. We all are sinners. The Bible says that, every one of us. There's not one of us perfect. And so we have sinned and we, have, we do not measure up what is required for heaven. In fact, heaven requires perfection. God is holy. In fact, the seraphims and cherubims are there in heaven, and they are singing and shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. 
holy, holy, holy. And that's what they sing day and night. His holiness demands it. It is his nature. If we had a fire right here, and we were roasting marshmallows and hot dongs, and the hot dog fell into the fire, and I went to go reach in to grab the hot dog, which would be dumb, but let's say I tried, and the fire burnt my hand, I would not blame the fire because I know that's what the fire is. It is hot. God in his nature is holy. He cannot handle sin in heaven. We have a big problem. We have a problem. We are dead in our trespasses in our sins. In a place in which God made, he made heaven, he made a place called hell. And the place called hell was made specifically for this commander, for this leader, Satan, and his demons who are fallen angels for their, their final place. Their final destination is that place. He made it for them. Now sometimes people will ask, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? Let me reverse that for a moment. Why would a loving God, who has made all that he has made, how can you look at all creation and go, oh, this is all just one mistake? This building had a creator. Someone built this building. Every building has a builder. Every iPhone has a maker. Every, everything that you have, every car has a dealer that made that. Why would the the creation and the world in which we live in be any different. God made it all. When we turn this around, though, why would a loving God who let his own son come and die on the cross for our sins, our sins, taking our penalty upon himself, God himself came down, offered himself to die, to be beaten for us. And if that is rejected. You go, I'm just not interested in that. Creation even itself is a light showing us there is a God. There's a creator. There's something more. He's given us his word. You could go on and on. Why would a loving God make you go to a place called heaven if you had no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth? And he doesn't make anybody go. We all make, we all make that decision. You see, before Christ, we have a rebel's heart. The Bible clearly says there are spirits in the unseen world and, and that are that are of the air. These spirits are fallen. They're bitterly hostile to mankind. They are ruled by the dread prince of the power of the air, Satan. Is and, and before Christ, Satan had complete control over us. And um, that his influence was all-encompassing as the air. It doesn't make you do evil. Satan, you know, you can't use that excuse. Satan made me do it, like a kid likes to do when they're a kid, right? No, you did it. But, but, but it is, it is, is a, an unnoticed pressure on us. And at times it is felt. There is darkness. There is evil. There is good. If truth be told, the more we, we live in this world, the more we feel it, the more we sense it. Why are so many movies about good versus evil? Why are so many movies about end times, about the world ending? 
Because it's a spiritual, it's connected spiritually. You ever notice in, in the same movies there's always a savior swooping in? You could say almost all the movies you see that, are, that have that plot, they just, they just took it from the Bible. That's what they really did. And, and so realize you need help. There's a word I want to give you, and we're going to go deep here for a moment. All right? Maybe this is new to you. That's okay. It's called total depravity. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Total depravity is a doctrine of original sin that says that the sinner has been blighted by sin in all their parts. Every person in the human race is corrupted, perverted in his soul, spirit, body, intellect, emotions, mind, will, understanding. We are born bent towards sin. I have three kids. You know how many of them I had to teach to sin? They're just like their mother. They, it they took right up. It was not a problem. No, every one of us, we are bent toward, you don't have to teach them to sin. You have to teach them to do right, right? You do. And, and, and so um, we are bent towards sin. So total depravity doesn't mean that all sinners' behavior is as bad as it possibly could be. It does not mean that all sinners are equally outrageous in their sinful acts and what they do. It does not mean that a sinner cannot make some good decisions or choices by God's grace. Man is a free moral agent and able by God's grace to make choices within the parameters of his nature. I'm reading some of this to you. The total depravity, though, is also oftentimes, and this is something in Christianity that we have some disagreements about because it's a secondary issue. It's an important issue. And maybe even some here might disagree with me. It's okay. We can disagree. We can, we can, but total depravity is often confused with total inability. And they're not the same thing. Um, total inability means that the sinner does not have the, um, doesn't have to cooperate with God in order to be saved. So some go well beyond what I believe total depravity actually means. They embrace what I believe to be total inability because they do not believe that someone who is a sinner, someone who's far from God, can cooperate with God by believing until um, they have been what we call regenerated. In other words, some believe that God has chosen who's going to be saved regardless and it doesn't matter what else even happens. And this can kind of end up leading to really kind of a form of what we call fatalism. It doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. If God has chosen this person to go to hell and this person to go to heaven, it doesn't matter anyway. Now, I do not hold to that. I do believe in total depravity, but I don't believe in total inability. I believe that God has given every man, every woman, every one of us the ability to reject or to accept the beautiful plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That none of us are without excuse. Some will use this, and then we'll move on a little bit. They call it the Lazarus analogy. A dead and trespasses and sins. And what they try to do is combine the two ideas of Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the grave, which, man, how awesome would that have been? That's one of the reasons the Pharisees and the religious leaders were so frightened of Jesus and Lazarus being there. Like, he already raised one guy from the dead. We need to keep this guy out of here. And, um, but they'll say, dead is dead. And if you're dead, there's nothing you can do to be alive. 
There's a couple problems with this. One, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, were lost in sin. Doesn't mean they cannot say yes to the gospel. Doesn't mean that dead is dead. If I was dead, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drive. I couldn't build something. I couldn't make choices to do good or evil. Dead doesn't mean unable to make choices. So kind of when it comes to this Lazarus analogy of dead is dead. You can't do anything concerning your salvation spiritually. I, I, I think some common sense would go a long way when it comes to this subject. Now it's said that in John 6.44, no one can come to the Father um, unless to the Father, unless the one who sent me draws him. The question is, is God seeking to draw all to him? As we look in Scripture, we have something called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation would be like creation. As we look at the stars, we look at the Milky Way galaxy in which we live in. I mentioned this last week. If you could travel the speed of light, which was like, I can't remember the number now, it was like 600-something million miles an hour, something crazy that we can't really fathom. To go across the Milky Way in its diameter, to go from one end to the other end, would take you 100,000 years traveling the speed of light. That's kind of big. That's just our galaxy. That's not counting the other clusters and clusters and billions of galaxies that we've seen kind of through, a, through these powerful, huge microscopes. It's crazy. It's just crazy when you end up getting into general revelation. In fact, part of general revelation is something called, I mean, you've heard of the science of fine-tuning. It's interesting. Just to give you a couple of examples. We're 93 million miles away from the sun. If we were 92 million miles away from the sun, we would burn up. Could be no life here on earth. If we were 94 million miles away from the sun, it would be too cold, and we all would die as well. There would be no life on here on earth, but we're just the amount uh, away. The earth being tilted 23 and a half degrees is just perfect for it to rotate correctly. The fact that we have the moon where the moon is at shows that God placed it there because if there was no moon and the moon just disappeared, let's say you know someone nuked it and blew it up and it just went out into outer space, we're in a lot of trouble because we're not spinning anymore. It's like God placed it right there in the right spot. Here's something else interesting. I don't know what it has anything to do with I can't really make sense of it, but it's said that the same percentage of salt in the ocean is the same percentage of salt that's in your body. It's interesting. It's called the science of fine-tuning. Now, here's the thing about the science of fine-tuning. When you end up diving into the science of fine-tuning, you can Google it later, if you just change one of those dials, just one of those things, it's like everything's connected and you just take like, uh, was it the Jenga, you know, where it falls, the tower falls down? It's like, but if you take one out, it's not going to survive on its own. It all just crumbles. That's it. You ever heard of a scientist who challenged God to making a human being? This scientist was like, God, I figured out I can make a human being. We've figured out. We've become so far advanced through AI. We have it all figured out. God, I'm challenging you in making a person. I can make a person better than you. And so God's like, okay, I'll take you up on the challenge. So the scientist gathered all his materials together, including his dirt, and he had his big pile of dirt, and he's ready. And God's like, okay, scientist, are you ready to, uh, for this challenge? And scientist's like, absolutely. And so he's, God says, you go ahead and go first, scientist. And so he starts, and God says, oh, wait a second. 
get your own dirt. We can't even make dirt. We can take other things that came from the dirt and put it back into me dirt. We can't even make our own dirt. We need help. We are separated. Here's the next one. To truly be successful in life, you need to join the right team. Join the right team. See, grace changes. Folks, it changes everything. We've heard the bad news. And you may be wondering, like, man, I came to church for donuts, and the preacher starts off telling me how bad I am. Wow. Here's why. Here's why. If we were in a plane together, and let's say it's a 12-passenger plane, we're in the plane, and I start freaking out, but nothing's wrong with the plane. Like, we're smooth sailing. And I go, put on the parachute, and I grab the parachute, and I throw it at you. You, it falls in your lap, you're looking around, the engines are fine, they're not smoking, they haven't blown up, you're just thinking, okay, preacher, calm down, you're just afraid of flying, um, you know, and I keep going on, no, no, put it on, we're going to crash, like, like, like this is going to be the end, we got to get ready to jump out of this plane, you're like, calm down, it's going to be fine, different scenario. We just heard we're in the plane, we're 20, 30,000 feet up in the air, we hear a big boom, one of the engines has just exploded, there's smoke going everywhere, we're going like this and flopping all around, people are freaking out, people are screaming at the top of their lungs, we're going to die, we're going to die, I grab the parachute, I look at you, go, I go, all I say is parachute, and I throw it to you, it hits you in the chest. I don't have to say, you know what? Maybe you should put on the parachute. Maybe you should think about it. I don't need to convince you. You go, boom, boom, on. I open the door. I jump out. I don't even have to tell you what to do. You go, you jump out as well because the plane is going down. Everyone jumps out. And so often when we hear the gospel, it's like, you know what? Just come to Jesus and... You know, everyone goes to heaven kind of anyway. Just kind of make him a part of your life, and it'll be okay. And Jesus is, you know, it's, God does love everybody. He does. He does. doesn't mean everyone goes to heaven. We have this idea that everyone just goes to heaven. When you start off, we are dead. We are separated. There is a good and an evil. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve that. Every one of us, me, you, everyone, we don't deserve heaven. And if you're here this morning, you're like, I, preacher, I agree. I don't know why God even loves me. I don't know either, but he does. He does. It's in his nature. Just as I mentioned, God is holy. God is love. And he offers grace and mercy to all. You see, mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, and God shows that. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And he gifts it to us. You say, what do, what do I do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. And he offers it. And some reject it. Some accept it. And so our sin gave God the opportunity to display the side of his character that other way, otherwise might not be uh, revealed. In his work of creation, he displayed his wisdom and his power. And we learn from chemistry and 
in physics and biology and medicine, the more we learn about God's infinite wisdom and power. And on the stage of redemption, God demonstrated not just his grace, but the riches of his grace, but the exceeding riches of his, of his grace. And so just think about how much has changed in this world in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, 100 years ago, America's drove Model T's to go see silent movies and dealt with newfangled inventions like the toaster and the zipper. It's crazy, isn't it? I don't think they even had sliced bread at that point in time. The Eiffel Tower was the tallest structure in the earth. Teenagers didn't even exist. There was no, no one said you're a teenager. You just were 13. Congratulations, you're 13. Happy birthday. Go to work. That's what you did. <laughs> they weren't called teenagers until the 40s. There was no NFL. There's many different sports that didn't exist. Women couldn't vote. It would be difficult to explain some of the inventions of the wonderful things to someone 100 years ago. That we go around with something on our ears that's not connected to any wire and we're, we're able to talk to other people. I mean, explain the Apple headset to people. I mean, people doing this, looking into something, right? I mean, have you seen that? I want to try one, but I don't think I really want one. And um, maybe you've seen that, I don't know. But before Christ... It's hard to explain what we have in Christ. This is what God does. It's like he takes the scales, the darkness, off our life spiritually when we accept Christ. It's almost like we're looking down in the darkness. He saves us. The light turns on, and we look out. He saves us. He gives us a different point of view. That's what grace does. The cross offered grace. Grace makes us alive in Christ. Grace changes our address. Grace changes what team we are on. And according to Scripture, we are either following Christ and He is our leader. And maybe if you've not accepted Christ and you didn't realize this, and maybe this might even offend you, but it's biblical. Without Christ, without submitting to him, your team captain, your leader is Satan himself. So all that sounds extreme, maybe, but it's also biblical. There is a world in which we don't see. It doesn't make it not real. Just as there's radio waves and Wi-Fi signals going on through here, I don't see them, but I know they're real. I know I can turn on the radio. I know I can get on my phone or computer and do accordingly. In the spiritual realm, there's things in which we do not see, but they are felt. Notice, notice that we're called to believe, receive, and then weirdly enough, do your job. Chapter 8, or excuse me, verse 8, says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Good works are a part of God's plan for you. They are not the price of salvation, but the proof of our salvation. I'll also put it like this. 
is that we do good works and do things not to become saved or born again, but because we are born again, because we are believers in Christ. And so God saved you not to keep you just on the shelf. He saved you to do good works. And you cannot get into heaven just by your good works. In fact, there's a couple myths, myths people believe. Here's myth number one. God only gives grace to good people. We've already established the first part of the message that none of us are born good. We were born sinners. We need help. Here's myth number two. As long as your good outweighs your bad, you'll get into heaven. That is a myth. In fact, I'll even take it a step further. That is a lie straight from Satan. And he loves to whisper that into people's ears. I don't know how many times I've asked people, hey, do you, do you think God would let you into heaven? Well, I think so. I'm a pretty good person. It's not what gets you in, my friend. It's not what gets you in. You might be a good person compared to the people around you. Valid. But when we compare ourselves to a holy God, we realize how much help we need. We need help. We need grace. The plane is going down. We need grace. We need help. We need the parachute. We need direction. We need to know what to do. And I'm here to tell you today, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, as humbly and as nicely as I can say, you are going to hell without Jesus. And I don't want to see you go there. I don't say that with glee. I'm not saying that to condemn anyone. That's not my job, man. We feel condemned enough in life. But I'm saying without Jesus, we're not getting into heaven. We need help. And the Bible says that, that, that Jesus, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made righteousness of God in him. We're made righteous through the cross. We're not made righteous because we're good. I'm not made righteous because I'm a pastor or someone's a deacon or a teacher or they're here every single time the doors are open. We're saved by the grace of God. And that's what makes grace so amazing. In his book, in his book, The Case for Grace, Lee Strobel, he has a case for Christ, the Case for Faith, which I recommend. Um, very good books, especially if, you're, if you have a lot of questions, like we just mentioned about why is there evil in the world. Some, some good questions that I think we all should ask and investigate, right? Um, but in his book, author Lee Strobel describes a dream he has a ch as a child. And after having a significant argument with his father, Strobel does what most of us would do at that age, Resolved to work harder, perform better, to get in his father's good graces. And the dream that followed demonstrates, even at an early age, that grace would seep eventually into Strobel's life and that the performance treadmill that he learned as a child would never get him where he wanted to be. This is what he wrote. One evening when I was 12, my father and I clashed over something and I walked away feeling shame and guilt. I went to bed vowing to, to behave better, to be more obedient, and somehow make myself more acceptable to my dad. And I can't recall the details of what caused our conflict that evening, but what happened next is vivid in my mind even 50 years later. I dreamed I was making myself a sandwich in the kitchen when a 
luminous angel suddenly appeared and started telling me how wonderful and glorious heaven is. I listened for a while and then said, matter-of-factly, I'm going there. Meaning, of course, at the end of my life, I'm going there. And the angel replied, stunned me. How do you know? How do you know? What kind of question is that? Well, I've tried to be a good kid, I stammered. I've tried to do what my parents say. I've tried to behave. I've been to church. The angel said, it doesn't matter. Now I was staggered. How could it not matter? All my efforts to be compliant, to live up to the demands of my parents and teachers, and panic rose in me. Words wouldn't come out of my mouth. The angel just, what seemed like me for a moment, just stand there and stew on those words. And then he said to me, someday you'll understand. And instantly he was gone. I woke up in a sweat. It's the only dream I remember from my childhood. And periodically, every so often, through the years, it would, it would come to my mind, and I would just shake it off. Oh, it was just, just a dream. Just a dream. You see, so many think they're getting in because they're good outweighs their bad. Here's a third myth as we wrap this up. Because of my past, God would not want to use me. I have sinned too much. I've done too much. And you think to yourself, you're too broken. You're too broken. God surely could not mend me. God should, surely would not let me start fresh and new. But I want you to know, I want you to know that he can and he will. You see, it says in verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. A masterpiece. Think about that. This passage from verse 1 starts off, you're dead, you're separated, you deserve death and hell, to, but God is rich in mercy and grace. And that he saved us, not by our good works, And after he saves us, he picks us up and says, this is my masterpiece. Now, if we were building something, we wouldn't want to start with the best marble, the best material, the best of the best. But God takes all the broken pieces, all of it, all of our brokenness. How cool is this? And he wraps his beauty around it, and he makes something new. And he says, this is a trophy of my grace. I mean, how beautiful is that? He says, this is mine. You're a part of me. Christ is in you. And we live in a world full of broken people who don't think they deserve God's grace. I love what another pastor said, and it's what he said. This is a quote. The grace of God allows you to be something you're not and to do something you can't. I'm going to say it again. The grace of God allows you to be something you're not and to do something you can't. That's how wonderful and awesome God's grace is. 
It's available for anyone who will come to Jesus this morning. Who will come to him and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death and hell. But God, because you're offering grace and mercy, I'm running to the cross. I'm coming to the cross and I'm giving you my life. And I think that's the least we can do. The least that we can do for what God has shown us. He really does love us. He really does want to save you. He really will change you. How do we win in life? I think Jesus described it best. Whoever finds their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake, they'll find it. Let us pray. Father, there's no other word for grace but amazing. And I pray this morning, anyone watching or anyone here who has never accepted you as their Savior, what they're feeling right now, that feeling of go, that feeling of accept Christ, that feeling of action, it's the Holy Spirit who is God wooing you, not pressuring you, but a gentle nudge of go. Today is a day of salvation. If that's you, this is what I want you to do. Right where you're at, I want you to pray with me. Pray, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I'm asking you to save me, to show me grace. Jesus, I'm putting my belief and trust in you. If you're praying to accept Christ for the first time in your life, while eyes are closed here during this time of reflection, See, Pastor, I'm giving my life to Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm giving my life to Christ here this morning. Will you raise your hand? Just show it to Jesus. Show it to the Lord. Just you and me. I'm giving my life to Christ. Hey, Jesus died naked on the cross for us. There was no white robe or cloth over him in real life. He went for us. Don't be ashamed. Pastor Lucas, I'm giving my life to Christ this morning. Will you raise your hand? Show it to the Lord. Show it to me. Raise it up high. I'm giving it to him this morning. God, we love you. We're thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for this beautiful, beautiful grace in which you've bestowed and showered on every one of us here, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.